Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Rational Standard Podcast. Uh, today, I'm chatting with prominent South African YouTuber, Conscious Caracal. Uh, it's been a while since we've had a last episode, uh, but uh, we're here to talk about the state of the South African media and whatnot. Uh, Conscious, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much for having me on. Can I call and, you? Yeah, in our, just to, to give some context, because uh, this is the second take now of the intro. So, yeah, you brought up in the, in the, previous, uh, in the previous false start about uh, the people that I've talked to. Um, yeah. yeah. So I've, I've been on stream with um, Sargon Abacard, uh, Count Dankula, the Nazi pub guy, um, Sticks, Hex and Hammer, the Britisher. Uh, yeah, so, and I'm quite fortunate that I've been able to, to network with these people and being able to get in touch with them. And I don't want to call it the, the intellectual dark web because that's kind of a cliche term and it, it adds a bit too much, too much importance to my role. Um, I've never viewed myself as like an intellectual heavyweight in the, in the online sphere. Uh, like I always tell people, I'm just a guy with a mic. Um, that's how my channel got started, out of just a, a moment of frustration where I didn't see anyone uh, covering certain issues from a particular angle. And because I saw no one else doing it, I thought, well, I might as well make a video on it. And the immensely positive response I got just set the ball rolling. And since then, I've just been making videos and expanding my my reach. And it's uh, the interesting thing about it was I've never I never planned to like make a channel that people care about. And it seems to just people were gravitating to my opinion. And as long as there are people that are willing to listen, then I'll keep making content. Yeah, you know, I think your success speaks to a little bit of the way in which the South African media is moving. We have an ever-present uh, growing community of YouTubers and podcasters, and this has been alive and well in the UK and the US, but I, I, f I seriously feel like it's growing a lot more in South Africa, certainly the last five years or so. Uh, and I think it's quite uh, poignant that you've been able to contact these guys overseas. Um, now, another thing uh, which we mentioned briefly before we started recording was the fact that your anonymity is quite interesting because if people are to attack your arguments, they can't attack you based on some kind of identity, um, unless Caracal is privileged. I'm unaware of that as of yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> don't know if anyone's called you a privileged Caracal as of now. Um, <laughs> no, but, I haven't heard that one, man. Yeah, but that, that's quite an interesting uh, um, um, point of view. Uh, can I ask, uh, you know, in your time commenting on certain issues on the internet, do you find that the engagement with the online community is mostly just rotten sort of trolls or is, is there a lot of sort of thought that goes in some of the comments on YouTube? I'll tell you briefly from my side, being at Rational Standard for a few years, unfortunately, a lot of the commenters on our articles, like I would say maybe 70% of them just sort of see the article, don't read it and just comment some rubbish. But there are actually a lot of people who I find very, very intelligent and that's what I've appreciated from the online community. Yeah, um, I don't think the real problem is the people themselves. I think you touched on a, the, the actual problem right there when you talked about the headline. So in today's modern uh, internet society, people only read headlines. Um, it's actually something that frustrates me quite a bit where people don't read articles anymore. They just react to headlines. And, you can, and the, the media know this. They're not stupid. They know that people only, that a large majority of people only share headlines. So they pick their stories based on what type of headline they can create with that story. A good example is a, a video I made uh, a while back on uh, when Trump made his tweet about farm murders. 
so there was a this headline that was posted by uh, the, I think Times Live and by News Twenty Four and all these South African news outlets that read, uh, "South African farmers tell Trump leave us the hell alone." So then I, I saw this headline and it floored me. I'm like, "This I, I need to I need to find out more." So I went to the I actually read the article, and then I realized, "Oh wait, um, they actually just interviewed one guy." Um, but they they've used the the headline South African farmers plural, but it's just one guy that said oh, I don't agree with what Trump uh, said and I, I you should just leave us the hell alone and that made the headline, which just it <laughs> it just served to to actually just delegitimize the media in my mind even further when I saw it I could not believe how lazy they were. Yeah, I mean that's really disgusting stuff when people you know. You, you cannot do that and knowingly think that you are being fair to what the source is saying or, or what the sort of general environment is. The only possible way in which you can come up with, an head, with a headline like that once you've interviewed one guy is if you have some sort of agenda. So I think these people really know what they're doing. Um, and I think it's an unfortunate part of the, of the fact that a lot of ad revenue comes from just clicks, that these people get more clicks, um, you know. Um, I'm interested to ask quick, I've got my own opinions on this. Uh, do you think that there are any mainstream media outlets these days which are, you know, respectable? Uh, I'm sure there are a few, but you know, certainly in South Africa and the US, it seems that they're just very, very partisan. Would you say there are any sort of neutral mainstream media outlets which you like? Yes, definitely. There's this outlet called The Rational Standard that I quite like. <laughs> We're not neutral. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, I actually quite like the uh, politics web. I have a lot of respect for what I, I'm going to say what he's doing. This is one guy um, that's that's keeping that side up. And I've had so many interesting and thought-provoking articles published by them that uh, I would definitely put them at the top of the list as one of the more trusted and uh, just respected media outlets in my mind in the South African sphere. And the fact that I can't really name someone else, another outlet that I really respect, is quite sad. And it's a testament to the state of the media. The fact that, yes, there are some of them that are like lukewarm, that I can say, okay, about 40% uh, good coverage, but there aren't any that I can say, okay, but the, these are like at the top. I really like these guys. And I think that's, that's quite telling. Yeah, and it didn't always used to be like this either. Um, I think there was always polarization. I think media, you know, always had their biases one way or the other, which in my view is not necessarily bad. You know, at the rational standard, we make a point of saying we come at things from this perspective. Uh, now, all that does is it leaves it up to the reader to judge the articles accordingly. But the main problem, I'm sure maybe you disagree with me here, and you must let me know, is is I, I just hate it when news... Uh, organizations say or try to claim to be neutral and try to claim to be independent when you write headlines like South African farmers tell Trump to leave us the hell alone. Uh, I just find that absolutely disgusting. Uh, you know, rather be honest about it in my view. Yeah, uh, that's exactly the thing. I don't think the problem is bias. Uh, I think the problem is actually just not being honest with your audience. So claiming to be a centrist or claiming to be unbiased, I think does more damage than uh, not uh, then being biased. Yeah, I agree with you there. And we it's a quite a common leftist retort to always say, yeah, 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 but you're biased. And that's obviously true, but, you know... We're all biased. We're all biased, but the way forward is to judge someone 
based on what the facts of what they say and, and not their biases. And likewise, you know, we, we say we come at this from a certain angle, judge us accordingly. Um, sort of from that, one particular organization has really been taking a beating, well, not really taking a beating, but the media has certainly been out to get them, and that's Afri Forum. Now, I'm interested to hear, I've developed my own theory as to why this is. Why do you think the media is going after Afri Forum so much? So I always say death always has a cause, and I think there's a myriad of reasons. Uh, the, first, the main reason, I'd say, is the fact that AfriForum, well, the media need to, to keep their narrative alive, and their narrative is, oh, okay, we have terrible people on both sides. Well, that's kind of true, but at the same time, you don't have a right-wing equivalent of the, the BLF or, F or the EFF in terms of influence or uh, just in terms of uh, imp social impact. I mean, a lot of people say, oh, but the, the RV of beer. I mean, like, when's the last time you heard about them? They're, probably, they're practically non-existent. Um, so they need a boogeyman on the right to be able to keep this narrative alive. Like, oh, no, it's both sides are equally terrible. Uh, we're just seeing all these extremists popping up. And I'm maybe I'm biased, but I'm so, I don't think the... Uh, the right wing has the, the equivalent of e the EFF in terms of influence. And then you have now, so now they're looking for someone on the right that they can say, okay, but this is the right wing equivalent of the EFF, for example, because that takes away, or that that serves the left's narrative that they're not really, the, that the cultural zeitgeist and the um, the Overton window hasn't completely jerked to the left in the in the past few years, which we all conceive is what is the case. Yeah. So now they identified AfriForum as this EFF or BLF equivalent on the right, and I'm not even just this is not something that's implied. This is something that they've outright stated, saying that they are pretty much the same thing. Now then, I ask you the question: uh, I don't see BLF or the EFF going around fixing potholes. I don't see BLF or EFF doing the equivalent of what AfriForum are doing in, in for example, assisting black farmers to uh, in uh, um, dealing with land invasions or assisting black or colored people in court cases. I don't see BLF or EFF doing that. I don't see them doing what AfriForum are doing in terms of being a civil rights NGO. And I think, but yeah, that's why, to answer your question um, before I go on a tangent, um, I think it's to, the main reason is to preserve their narrative that, oh no, both sides are equally terrible. Um, there's, they, we don't, we're not going soft on, we're not uh, giving low, low balls to the one side and giving preferential coverage to one side. We condemn extremists on both sides and AfriForum are the extremists on the right. Um, yep. So for me, uh, so yeah, that's the one reason is the ideological reason. The second reason is just the monetary reason, the, the clicks. Um, AfriForum are a boogeyman, they, and the EFF as well, to an extent. And you want, the media want extremist um, organizations because they write headlines. If, uh, for example, that's why the EFF gets so much coverage in the media, even though they're so small in terms of uh, really in parliament, for example, in terms of seats. They get so much coverage because they make incredible headlines. I mean, you, you just see it on the front pages. EFF says something incredibly ludicrous. And then people just like, oh, I want to see this. I want to find out what did, the, what did EFF say this time. And the media, actually, I think the media would have wet dreams about a right-wing extremist group the size of AfriForum that is genuinely radical. Because that would give them even more material and even more crazy headlines. And would be it would even be better 
because then you'd be able to sell that that fear almost to the majority of South Africans as well, saying, look at all these apartheid apologists or people that want to bring back the past. Uh, look at this crazy thing that they just said. So I do think there's two dimensions to it, to just wrap up my answer. There's an ideological dimension, but there's also uh, sometimes ignored uh, financial reason for the demonization of Afroform. Yeah, and what I also see, that's an interesting analysis because it brings me to think about how many times I see BLF mentioned in the media. The BLF could not be less of an irrelevant organization. I mean, this is probably barely can fill a dinner party, this political party. And they genuinely are crazy. I genuinely think that if they actually hold the political views that they do hold, that they are crazy. I mean, it is just the most egregious stuff on, on earth. And originally I thought yeah. that it was, this was like an act basically because they were getting paid by the Guptas. Um, the Guptas have since gone. Um, so it seems to be a little bit more genuine, but still it's, it's always difficult for me to believe them. Um, but what I often see the media doing, just to get back to the original thing about Afri Forum, is that on issues where Afri Forum does stuff, uh, for example, farm murders, this is a, a pet issue which the media always likes to portray as being not particularly important. And the way they do this is they take a moderate position. Like, let's say a moderate position is farm murders are a problem. That's such an ambiguous statement, but... I'm sure a lot of South Africans could agree with that statement. So let's say Afri Forum says farm murders are a problem. The immediate response from the media is, what do you mean there's a white genocide? That's crazy. <laughs> so they, they conflate the most extremist views on the right with very, very moderate uh, issues, which people in South Africa who perhaps are more right-wing, I'm, I'm using that in the British sense, I'm not saying extreme, uh, care about. And I think this is also part of their political agenda, and this is a very easy way uh, of, of them to push it. Uh, in addition to that, I've noticed one thing in South Africa, and I think we have a group of journalists with blue check marks, maybe not as many blue check marks in South Africa, but regardless, they really like sticking it to people who are successful in this country. Um, I see very, very few organizations which are non-governmental non that are very successful that don't get criticized. And I think Afriform has been enormously successful. Um, I remember reading that their membership numbers increased to a record high after Adam Sturutz gave his uh, speech in Parliament. And Afriform, you know, in terms of getting new members, in terms of the work they do, like filling potholes and have uh, Afriform 911, those wristbands, they really are a genuinely good organization which does stuff, which improves people's lives. And I think this keeps journalists at News 24 awake at night and they just can't deal with it. Mm. No, definitely. And uh, to, to tie into the, the different angles that people can take. So in the wake of the Aaron Zarutz's parliament speech, um, they got these record, record um, new... Well, I don't think it's their all time record but they it was definitely a, a exceptional month afterwards but uh, guess what the news 24 headline was the spectacular unraveling of afri forum yes i, I remember that, seeing that um i mean that's just crazy like what what, what are they referring to and <laughs> i think what they're talking about is they view adam Sturitz's speech as being an embarrassment because of the way his mps reacted to him um what I found quite interesting is that in an interview following that, he himself said, 
what would have been a failure is if I, we had gone to Parliament, given our speech, nobody asked any questions, and we just sort of moved along. And that really made me think about stuff for a while. I think the fact that they got the reaction they did for giving the ANC a tongue lashing on the NDR really speaks a lot. Uh, mm. And that was really an important no, point. He, he, he definitely touched a nerve there. Yeah. Um, anyway, so that's the media in South Africa, really a bit of a sorry state. Um, now, to turn it a little bit more political, I always like talking to our guests about a, a pet interesting topic of mine, and that's next year's election. Um, I've been thinking every single day about who I'm going to vote for, on what basis I'm going to vote for. Now, I know you like to keep an, anom uh, an anonymous profile, but maybe you can give a few views on a more philosophical level. And in my view, I've become now a single-issue voter. Uh, you know, property rights are just so important. That's basically what I've, I'm going to be voting on next year. So I'm interested to quickly ask you, do you think there's any hope for the DA? Open question. Hmm. Yeah, the DA, I think the DA is the most schizophrenic political party or bipolar political <laughs> party, rather, in the South African political sphere. It's a great they description. Have an, they have an incredibly, incredibly big identity crisis going on at the moment. And I think the, the main reason for it is the fact that they don't know what they are. They don't know whether they are, uh, the as they've been aptly labeled, the ANC light, or if they are a, a party that stands up for minority rights or for the minorities of South Africa. And you can't juggle those two at the same time. I mean, the best way or the best example of where this, this bipolar nature of the DA comes, up, comes out was in that parliament meeting with, Af uh, with Adams Roots where they were, and in the aftermath as well. So not only in the parliament meeting that they told Aaron's Roots, and I quote directly, nothing that you, I agree with absolutely nothing that you just said. So now let's take that uh, and let's unpack it. What are, what are they actually saying? Firstly, they're coming out in support of EWC. That's a big one. Secondly, they're completely spitting in the face of their, their commitment to protecting minority rights or even protecting what's in the constitution. And then you look at the aftermath. In the aftermath, now if I was to firstly put a little footnote there, if I was a strategic advisor for the DA, I would have told them, yes, Aaron Soritz is going to speak in parliament. You need to acknowledge that he, if he says something that makes sense, for example, his opposition to land expropriation without compensation, you need to acknowledge it. You need to say, okay, you don't have to say, okay, I agree with everything you said, Afriforum is the best, the DA now endorses Afriforum. They just needed to come out and say, Adams Roots made good points. We didn't agree with this and this and this, but on these core issues, he had a valid point. But they didn't, so that's one own goal. Then secondly, they made it worse. So in the aftermath, on social media, uh, two DA MPs went out of their way to make sure the South African public understands that they view AfriForum as scum, that they view AfriForum and quoting one of these MPs that I'm not going to name, and I, don't, I think everyone that's listening probably knows who it is, said that Aaron's roots spoke, what he said was a bunch of manure. So that's just a, a very a euphemistic way of saying he was stalking absolute bullshit. And I think a dear MP, and then another one chipped in as well, also went on a Twitter, like made like 20 tweets uh, attacking Aaron's roots as well. And I mean, when you see that, as a, and I mean, the AfriForum support and DA support still overlap quite significantly. 
And seeing that, seeing the party that you're probably going to vote for and you're an AfriForum member, and you see that party come out and go, again, out of their way to jump on the AfriForum bash wagon, I mean, that's not a good look. That's terrible optics. That You're basically saying, we're, going to, uh, we're just going to try and be the ANC light. We're not going to look out for minorities. We're not going to support NGOs like AfriForum for X, Y, and Z reasons, even though they are in opposition to land expropriation without compensation. We're not even going to find common ground with them there. I just think it was an absolutely monumental own goal. And it just keeps getting worse. They're not, they're not, the, the DA's optics are so bad from my perspective. Um, they, they seem almost hell-bent on alienating their, their, their classical liberal base to an extent. The people that believe in freedom of speech and in property rights and all these very fundamental things. And they're pandering to the identitarians. One moment they're saying that we're the non-racial party. Uh, I think this happened, uh, I can't remember when, but this is also something I told Ronaldo this, because I said that you're, you're do, this is another uh, optics blunder. So what happened was um, they came out, uh, I think it was when the campaign started or something, but it doesn't matter. They came out and they said, and they reaffirmed, we are the non-racial party. We will not stoop so low as to go for racial division and look at people based on their race. Within that same week, a DA MP, I'm not going to name it, you know who it is, I'm sure comes out and, and brings out and, and starts going on a tirade about white privilege and going on a tirade about how we can't ignore race, about how race is so important that we need to have, our, have it interwoven into all our policies. And I mean, then you see this as a regular South African, as a layman, not someone that is educated in political science, you see this. And what message does that send? Does that show you or does that look like a party that knows what it is? Or does that look like a party that has internal divisions and internal cleavages that is tearing the party apart almost? It seems I see a lot of parallels between the DA and the American Democrats to an extent, where there's yeah. these two groups. The, for example, the, just to take the Democrats as an example, the, the, business, uh, the business liberals or the neoliberals almost, and then there's the progressive block. And these two blocks are just drifting farther and farther apart. And the progressives have become increasingly identitarian as well. And you're seeing this exact thing happen in the DA. And if I, I think if they don't start getting their, their shit together, and if they don't start really reeling, reining in some of these rogue MPs, they're not going to collapse, but they're not going to grow either. I think they're going to hover around pretty much 20%, and that's going to be their, their ceiling. Yeah, what I'd say is that I would really love for certain DA MPs to just come to terms with their political ideology and join the EFF already. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's been interesting. I have spoken to two DA members of parliament who profess to be of the classical liberal or libertarian-ish ilk, uh, which very much interested me because if you look at the, the way the DA portrays itself in the media, well, not just the media, but also their own, you know, their own press releases and stuff like that, I wouldn't have got that view. So when I talk to these uh, members of parliament, I always say, like, how do you come to terms with having these political views and the rest of your party being so different? And what they kind of say to me, and I'm saying this because I think it, it could be a genuine argument in their favor, just to give them a fair hearing here, is they say, no, like, even though I'm a classical liberal, I genuinely find that, like, a vast majority of my political views are in the DA's policy platform, 
it's just that we have to be careful about how we say these things. Um, one MP said, beating the libertarian drum or beating the classical liberal drum will only get you so far. And the view that I've gotten from both of these guys who I've spoken to is that the underlying policy is there. They just have to sort of suck up to the voters with the way they say things. Now, that could easily be true. Um, my view is that you're supposed to sell ideas as being good ideas, and I would much prefer to see that uh, because let's say people vote for the DA thinking that there's something which they're not. All that will mean is that the DA will get voted out of power one day, and I, I think that comes down to whether you think the ends justify the means. But you're right. You, the, the problem with the party is that it has these rogue MPs, um, and there's nothing wrong with having variation in the party. There's nothing wrong with having a debate. Uh, but they need to realize that they're going to lose votes if people who are high profile say stuff like this and it just goes like, this is fine. Everybody can just keep agreeing with each other. You know, I even spoke to a DA MP who said he did not really agree so much with the widespread condemnation of Adam Sruts. Um, I wish he had spoken up a bit more. Um, so, yeah, it's a very interesting situation. I, I agree. I think there's a massive identity crisis. But even if it is true that the DA remains a classical, classically liberal party, as these MPs have told me, I find it very difficult to put my support when property rights are on the line. And the most that the party leader can say is, yes, expropriation without compensation is not conducive to a growing economy. It's like cheapest man. You can say yeah, more and then that. they and then they're presented by an opportunity to be able to demonstrate that they support EWC on a on a on a platform, and then they don't take the opportunity. So I only see rhetoric at this moment, and when they are put in a position where they can actually put their neck on the line for property rights, they don't take the chance. So that I judge a tree on on its fruits. Yeah, that's hundred percent true. Um, Look, I think you can only call 40 chess to a certain extent. I think this is getting to be just a bad game of chess from them. <laughs> um, so, so that sort of begs the question, you know, who to vote for next year? Now, secret ballot, I fully respect that. But this sort of comes down to the way you, you see the election. Um, personally, I have to say that I think... Once, if, if it does happen that South Africa removes the property rights clause of the constitution and we become a disaster, I would like history to look back and see Mosiwa Lakota as being like our shining beacon, like something like Morgan Changirai. Of course, he's not the same thing. Morgan Changirai got beat up because he was a member of the opposition party, but the sort of amount of abuse and just complete rubbish which Lakota has had to go through for defending yeah. the constitution has really been quite amazing for me and I've gained a great deal of respect for him his party is the thing which I have a bit of an issue with but there I have a, a view that the DA needs to get punished and if I think if they lose a few votes it might be very healthy for them it might serve yeah. to give them a wake-up call yeah so my logic is I'm I'm for the, uh, looking at the the issue philosophically or just strategically rather the DA is not going to win the election. They're not going to be the next government of South Africa. So I think if you want to punish the DA, this is the election to do it. It will be the, the most inconsequential punishment in terms of, uh, the, in terms of the, the results of the election. Yes, you'll, they'll lose some parliamentary seats. But at the same time, this is when they need to course correct. This is the make or break moment. If the DA don't course correct now, they're going to be an irrelevant party in five years. And I think what, what needs to be done is they need to realize 
we need to stick to our rhetoric. Because I always say the partisan DA voter is a myth. It's like a mythical creature. Because <laughs> yeah. you, can't, you, can't, you don't see a partisan DA voter that's been like this hardcore DA voter that wears his DA shirt at, in as casual way. You don't see that. Because the DA has gone through so many transformations that the guy that was a DA voter in the previous election is now completely alienated probably. But they've gained some other voters as well because of their shifting policies or their shifting worldview. And I think something that's actually uh, uh, to their detriment is their obsession with the polls. The idea of, I, I know for a fact the DA does extensive polling. I mean, these guys are looking at public opinion polls every second. And I think that's actually not helping them. I think it's it, this is one of the reasons for their their schizophrenic nature as a party. Do you think they I take think they're polls? Just, they're just they, moving with the tides. Do you think they just take polls and they see, oh, what's popular will say that? Mm. Yeah. Uh, it seems to me, just by from my own personal uh, point of view, it seems to me that they just shift with the tides. They don't really have a foundation. For example, I have much more respect, even though I don't agree with them on much, for the EFF than the DA. Because at least the, the EFF knows what they are, even though their actions don't reflect it. They stick to their rhetoric. They don't change their rhetoric. Pretty. They soften up, maybe, but their ideology stays solid, and that I can respect. Yeah, I think I'd have to agree with you there. Well, you're right. I think the, the term you use there, course correction, is quite a good metaphor for basically what's going on here. Uh, it might take a loss of a few votes. Um, as a last little topic to talk about here, what is your prediction for next year's election? It's obviously a long way away. Um, but I quite enjoyed this uh, practice of speculating a bit. You tell me what you think is going to happen, and then I'll tell you what I think is going to happen. Okay, so I'm probably going to be horribly wrong off the mark, but I'm going to give you my completely honest opinion. I think what's going to happen is I actually have add, I give a lot of weight to the Institute of Race Relations' latest poll. Um, the data seems to me to line up with what I see in the cultural zeitgeist. Um, I think the EFF are going to gain a lot of support. I think they're going to go up to at least 12 or 11%. And I think the DA are going to hover around 20, 22% in that region. And the ANC, I can't say, because historically the ruling party uh, based on polls is, is always underestimated. So I can't really, can't really give a prediction on where their percentage of support is going to fall. But I can give you a pretty, a pretty solid prediction in terms of my own conviction in terms of the DA and EFF is that the EFF are going to gain and the DA are pretty much going to stay stagnant and the COPE is going to gain a few. They're going to gain a, a few uh, percentage points. So, Maybe, so uh, can, I, can I ask, do you think the DA is going to go up or down? Uh, they're going to stay in the same place, pretty much the same place. Okay. Maybe gain 1%, drop 1%, gain 2%, drop one percent in that general region i'll give it a plus three or minus three within that six point uh, region they're not going to gain immensely or drop immensely okay that's 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 an interesting view so you know it was interesting the moment so ramaposa mentioned expropriation without compensation all those months ago Basically, what I thought was quite interesting is that this model of a democracy is quite similar to a lot of things we see in Europe. And what I mean by that is that in Europe, uh, you also have these multi-party democracies where you, generally speaking, have got one big center-right party, one big center-left party, 
And those are generally the only parties that get to form a government within countries. It's like this in the UK. But amongst the smaller parties, usually the third biggest one is a more extreme party on either the left or the right. In Europe, it's mostly uh, right-wing populist parties. But in Africa, we have a similar situation here in South Africa with the EFF. Now, what has traditionally happened in Europe when... Uh, so let's say, for example, you have a center-right party who is losing votes to a more populist right-wing party. What slowly starts to happen is that you'll see that center-right-wing party attacking with verbal abuse and slurs that right-wing party, calling them racist and, you know, every slur you can think of, while very subtly accepting that populist party's uh, policies, thereby taking the voters back. And I think a perfect example of this was UKIP. UKIP, um, in the election before Brexit, the general election that happened before Brexit, I think they got 12 or 13% of the popular votes in the, that UK general election. Um, they had won previously a European Parliament election in the UK, and there were a serious threat to uh, you know, the, Labour, um, sorry, the Conservative Party under David Cameron. And so as a result, David Cameron started to say things like, we need integration among immigrants. And then he called the referendum. And that was a big part of it. He thought, cheapest if I don't call this referendum, all our Eurosceptic people are just going to vote UKIP and the Conservative Party will never get back into government. Anyway, so we've seen this, this model's happened a few times. It's kind of like this in, in, in a lot of European countries. And I thought we might see a repeat of that in South Africa, because here we have the ANC, the left party, the DA, I'd love to say the right party, but it's more like, I'm not really sure where they are, party. Um, and the EFF has been driving, banging this drum of EWC. And now all of a sudden the ANC adopts EWC and that basically would make the EFF irrelevant. But that hasn't happened. So to me, that's a very interesting turn of events. And I'll give you my prediction. I think the ANC, you know, if I had to put money on it, I'd say they'd drop, but only slightly, not that much. I think the EFF is going to go up, and I think the DA will, will drop, by, but also only by a percentage or two. But I think they will drop. That's my prediction. Um, yeah. Right. No, that makes sense to me. Um, it's pretty much, it still makes sense within my framework of prediction as well. Um, I also think, uh, yeah, I, I can't give you an ANT percentage, but I do think they're going to drop a little. And that drop are either going to be people that don't vote or people that go to the EFF, not for any reason are those people going to go to the DA, I reckon. Yeah. Um, they're either going to go EFF or they're not going to turn out to vote. Yeah. And the, and you can just look at the, the past as well uh, in terms of voter, how the, the ANC's drop in, in support and the e, uh, DA and EFF's gain. The majority of the e, uh, uh, just by uh, the deduction or logic, it seems to me that the EFF are gaining much more from disenfranchised or alienated ANC voters than the DA are. That should worry the DA quite immensely. Yeah, for sure. Cool. This has been an interesting conversation. I'll be a, a short one. But thanks very much for coming on the show, Conscious Caracal. And I wish you all the best in your endeavors on YouTube. I'll certainly be listening. Mm, no, thank you for having me on. And I hope we can have another conversation in the future. I look forward to uh, talking to you a bit more politicking with you in the future as well, man. Yeah. And you, you're also welcome to come on my show. Uh, I'm a bit booked at the moment for the, uh, not only with, uh, with guests, but also with real life obligations. But wow. uh, the invitation stands for somewhere in the near future.
Well, I appreciate that very much, especially when you're rubbing shoulders with people like Count Dankula and Sargon of the Card. It's pretty cool, actually. I don't know about you, but one thing I'd just like to mention in closing is that since starting this podcast, I've been really happy at how, um, um, what's the word again? How accessible people are, even though there a lot of people have got like hundreds of thousands of followers on YouTube. A lot of times you just send an email, you just send a message and all of a sudden I got them on my podcast. I think that's a really fantastic aspect of this. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Rational Standard Podcast. You can find our articles at www.rationalstandard.com. Give us a like on Facebook and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or listen to the episodes online at PIPA. In addition to that, you can join our mailing list at rationalstandard.com or you can find me on Twitter at Nick Babaya or at Rational Stand. Stay tuned for the next episode.